Welcome to the Mindstream Podcast, exploring the facts and the stories around mind-body-spirit pathways to greater health and happiness. I'm your host, Liza Haran. In episode six, we're delving into the more magical and mysterious sides of the mind-body-spirit movement, ancient Celtic traditions, fairies, witches, the devil, and the mystical figures in the tarot cards to coincide with Halloween time. Join me as I speak with local artist Sophie McKay-Knight, who painted the full deck of 78 tarot cards over two and a half years. We'll learn what her process was and why she went largely with female or androgynous figures. And then we'll speak with Bradley MacArthur, who's the chair of the Beltane Fire Society, which is world-renowned for carrying on its spectacular Celtic traditions to mark the seasons. Halloween night is Samhain, also pronounced Samhain. We're going to hear all about this fascinating tradition and how it marks the interconnectedness between human life and nature. Here's a quick look at some news fit for the season. Halloween time is very fascinating because it's the one period of the calendar when it's okay to talk about the mysteries of life and death. When mainstream society will entertain the possibility that those who have passed before still hang around this realm. In fact, Halloween night, All Hallows' Eve, Samhain on the Celtic calendar, is the time when the veil between here and the spirit world is at its thinnest. Of course, modern entertainment use ghosts and zombies and vampires and all sorts of other characters to give us a scare. Maybe it's not surprising then that Poundland, the national retailer in the UK, sold Ouija board in 90 of its 800 stores for simply one pound. They caught on like wildfire and sold out when Paul McMasters, a psychic investigator, saw this. He was fuming. Several newspapers, including Metro, quoted McMaster's as saying, quote, everyone in the paranormal spirit field is angered. The risks of untrained people using Ouija boards is unimaginable. We won't even touch Ouija boards. He said demons can come through the board and attach themselves to the users. It's interesting because the only people who consider it a game are people who are outside of the field of paranormal, and psychic mediumship. In my own experience, as teenagers, we thought it was a lot of fun. But then again, we had seances at my birthday parties. (laughs) But I would not touch one now. The retail shop Damaged Society wasn't selling the spirit boards, but they were selling 15 items that had to do with the Ouija board, from a throw blanket a trinket dish, to a fabric patch to put on your jeans, and a goblet, among other things. 
Did you know that Scotland persecuted and killed more witches than any other place on earth? In the kingdom of Fife, just about a half an hour from the city of Edinburgh, there's an organization called Remembering the Accused Witches of Scotland, R-A-W-S. And in one town, Dalkeith, around 30 women were tried for witchcraft. Six of these were put to death. They were recently honored in a series of original portraits commissioned by Dalkeith Arts. For a quick history lesson, I'm looking to heraldscotland.com. Here's an excerpt from a recent story. Fear of witchcraft swept across Europe from the mid-15th century, but it was King James VI and his treatise of witchcraft called Demonology that sparked the race to eliminate sorcerers responsible for failing crops, illness, bad luck, stormy weather, and sick animals. Loyal Scots, who were desperate to prove their commitment to the crown, went on to execute five times more witches than their English counterparts. This sad history has become very relevant recently. There's a petition before the Scottish government right now to officially pardon all of those who were accused and convicted of witchcraft. The organization called Witches of Scotland is a campaign for a legal pardon an apology, and a national monument to be erected for the thousands of people, mostly women, who were convicted of witchcraft and executed between 1563 and 1736. More than 2,500 of those people were executed. If you're looking for an ironic laugh, catch Saturday Night Live that was broadcast on October 25th. That's the episode that Adele hosted, and it features a scene of a psychic telling Adele and her three friends what is to come in 2020, and it will all resonate. For the month of October, the Union Gallery in the West End of Edinburgh has featured the exhibit called The Fool's Journey by Sophie McKay Knight. It features selected artwork from her collection of the tarot cards and some other mystical and mysterious subjects like the three fates, witches, and astrology. Bells went off for me when I saw the tarot was being featured at a gallery. I've been surrounded by card reading my whole life because my mother and her mother read the regular playing cards. And my mother also read the tarot cards. I also enjoy reading the tarot cards, though I always have the book right next to me. You could say I'm a lifelong student of the tarot. If you missed the exhibition, head to sophiemckaynight.com, where you can see the images and also purchase her deck, The Painted Tarot. And now we'll join the conversation with artist Sophie McKay-Knight. Welcome, Sophie. Hi, nice to be here. I was just absolutely astonished that someone would take on such a huge and exciting project. 
a crazy person. (laughs) (laughs) And I was really excited. It was a reminder to think this wouldn't happen anywhere else except in Scotland to have this topic take over an art gallery. And I do find that these esoteric topics are just bubbling at the surface in every conversation and right around every corner. What drove you to pick the tarot as your subject? Honestly, I felt I had to and I don't I can't even explain why, but it, it was a combination of things like everything is a combination of everything, isn't it? Um, and particularly when you're an artist, nothing happens in a vacuum. I always work with the figure. The images in the tarot are all figurative. So, so that's, I suppose, a very kind of simplistic thing. But I suppose I've been working with stories and fairy tales and I was sort of veering into archetypes I'm very inspired by, well, I'm inspired by everything, really, because I think people are completely fascinating. But I'm often inspired by somebody from the past or a story from history or a mythology. So my work was kind of going in that direction anyway. But then sort of bubbling, you're talking about the bubbling of Scotland. (laughs) I guess things were bubbling within me too. And my grandmother and mother also read the playing cards, but I haven't heard anyone else doing that. And so that's where I first became interested in cards because, you know, my my nana particularly, who was from Fife, would be, um, she would be always looking and and she had this wonderful friend called Betty Roger and uh, Betty Roger would always come around and do our cards. And this was, you know, when we were children. Um, So I guess I was very much interested from from childhood in all of these things, uh, mainly through my grandmother. And my mother was very interested in um, astrology and she used to do people's birth charts. And, um, you know, whenever we got a new friend or a new boyfriend, it would be like, oh, what sign is he? You know, (laughs) that was all kind of quite normalized. So I guess, you know, these two things together, the development, the sort of technical development within my work and the figurative element and and also just wanting to do something um, that was really much more in line with how I was feeling. I had um, met my very good friend, Romy, Romy Weiser, who... um, I went to see for a reading. She's a tarot reader and a guide. And so I went to to speak to her about things. And um, she said, you know, you've got to do it. Because I was saying, you know, this is something that I would really like to do. And she just said, you've got to do it. So I I just did. And I was, you know, I had some reservations to begin with because obviously it's such a massive project, um, 78 paintings. And I don't think I really knew at the beginning (laughs) (laughs) um how long it would take me or or where it would where it would lead but I just started it I did one and I tried it and I started with the four of pentacles and it sold straight away and then very quickly I every time I did one it would sell or somebody would say this is really cool or I would get really great feedback so I just carried on and then it and then it just took on its own momentum as these things do Can you share a bit about the process of this project? There were periods where I was doing, you know, three, four, five at a time. And it was just kind of coming out of me, you know. And then there were other times where I had to, I felt like I had to do other paintings to to support the particular card I was working on or 
was quite complicated and involved and I think I didn't really speak to my husband very much for about two years because I was <laughs> I was always painting. <laughs> Any reason that you picked the four of pentacles to start with? Yeah, because now I think about it, I think I was feeling a little bit stuck with my practice. And um, the four of pentacles is a, a little bit about holding on and holding on to security and um, maybe not, you know, holding on too tightly to something and can, being very conventional in some senses. So I think it went along with wanting to just really feeling like, I, and I didn't know what it was, but I wanted to do something different. I wanted to um, to sort of break out of that security, I suppose. That's great. And thank you for sharing all of that. Were you tentative at all about this subject or did you feel that there is no taboo around the tarot as i said i feel that all of this is sort of part of the culture in scotland more than it is any other place that i've been yeah and so what it did it seem like a very natural thing to do or did you worry about did it ever cross your mind that oh people might write me off if I focus on this. Yes. Uh, oh, yeah? I did. Yeah, I very much did. Particularly because, yes, I agree that um, Scotland and, and, you know, and Fife have this, you know, history of the esoteric and all the rest of it. But actually, people are very sceptical. And I think, um, yes, I did feel very worried about it. And that, I think, I had to really get over that because there's a there's a lot of judgment I think around this sort of subject Mm -hmm. and I think there's a lot of um, inaccurate assumptions around it as well that you can't be a thinking person you can't you know you're just kind of jumping on a bandwagon or not taking things seriously or you don't have I don't know I mean people will have their own assumptions but yes I had a lot of reservations about doing it and it did keep me up at night but I did have this sort of desire I suppose to to just see where it would lead me and um and it but yes it was something that I absolutely had to get over and I think being an artist you feel vulnerable most of the time anyway <laughs> because you're putting yourself out there and I think artists would agree that you know it's uh, the whole thing about if you're aligned with what you're doing it's vulnerable making so yes I, I did and, and because it is something I suppose it's a belief system as well so Again, that does give you a little bit more um, consternation, maybe. Yes, is the answer, is the short answer. Yes, I did have a lot of reservations. And what has the reception been? It's been really positive, and I'm massively grateful for that. But I think I, I made a decision to sort of be myself with it, to do it in my own way, which is the only way to do anything creative. Previously, I had been, and I still am, working um, with scientific imagery and I was thinking well how can I marry the science with the the tarot and actually for me there's a massive connection between science energy tarot history for me it's all one you know so I think it was getting my head around the fact that I didn't have to do my work in separate categories so within the tarot deck there are some pieces like the death card for example there's a lot of references to 
energy and um, science and parapsychology and that kind of thing. So for me, it all crosses over. Every card, I suppose, was an illustration or a manifestation of things that I already knew and already felt. But I guess it's the combination of those things that I wasn't aware of, that I wasn't expecting. And just as you were there, I remember when I did The Empress, which was very early on, I couldn't wait to get her out because the Empress in the tarot is such a big energy, you know. And I have to say, some of the some of the cards are based on um, not not portraits of, but they're based on my friends or my my childhood memories or you know whatever. The way I work is is a kind of uh, mixed media, a lot of screen printed elements and painted elements, and within the Empress is the symbol for entropy and energy. So I'd already started putting in scientific imagery the combination of elements is something that sometimes was quite surprising. I think I said at the beginning, I had to do these other paintings to bring them to life. The devil card was the, was one of those because some of them I was really wary of, like really wary. The tower, for example. Yes. I was really wary of that, incredibly wary, because the tower always shows up for me when, you know, the chips are down quite badly down and or the energy you know I'm feeling is uh is quite challenging recently just just around the time I was painting the devil I had been talking a lot and listening a lot to stories and um, historical things about the witch trials the Scottish witch trials and a lot of the women who were accused of witchcraft were accused of dancing with the devil and so because the devil was such a big energy I was thinking gosh you know how do I do this? How, you know, how, do, how do you do these big, big energy cards without being cliched? My devil is actually quite cliched in that he's got horns and he's got wings and all the rest of it. But, I, you know, a lot of the time I wanted to weave in what I was interested in. So I didn't do research in particular, but I was always weaving in the things that I was already interested in. So, for example, with the devil, you know, the witch trials, with the sun card, I had been reading a book about Circe, the daughter of Helios, the sun god. So that was a Greek myth that I was weaving into that. So whatever I was working on had within it the things I was already interested in. So I might have gone and done a little bit of extra research about that thing, but it wasn't always about the card itself because the card was a sort of culmination of lots of different things. And in some ways, I had to leave things out. I'm fascinated how, while we were standing in the gallery, um, the devil was there and he was behind a pane of glass. And uh, as we were discussing it, I had to move out of his gaze. And it's a very unusual experience for me to have because I... I'm comfortable in any situation. I don't mind talking about hard things or be confronted with hard truths or anything. But there was something about that image that I just felt I need to step outside of his gaze and I could see my reflection in the devil. Mm. And that was the pane of glass. The images are large as life because they're very big canvases. And that one was very interesting. But just next to the devil, you had a couple of witches. And they don't look cliche at all. In fact, they look a little like a 
ordinary um, young girl might look back in the day. I also saw that you had the three fates in there. And mm -hmm. so as you talked about, you're very interested in mythology and these yeah. characters from lore. They fit beautifully into this exhibition. It is very prominently female. Yeah. It seems deliberate. And I was just wondering if there was anything you wanted to say about that. Mm. So the witches and the female. Yeah, um, yeah. They're, they're really interesting questions. I mean, the witches, um, like I say, I'd been having lots of chats. I have a really um, a lovely friend called Susan Goodfellow who works with the archive department for Five Cultural Trust. And um, she and I always had great chats about, you know, the Scottish witches. She's very knowledgeable. And um, she put me onto this podcast, this BBC Scotland podcast called Witch Hunt. And so I listened to this. And it's, I, I mean, I think it's still available on BBC Scotland's um, website. It is an absolutely fascinating account of what happened in Scotland during this terrible period. I was really interested in, in this anyway, and I had been asked to give one of my images for the Accused Witches of Fife Association. They're called the Remembering the Accused Witches of Fife. Roars is their name. The reason they said that they liked it was because it looked like a, a normal young girl. Hmm. And that was really important to me because I just feel that that even the use of the word witch is really, in that context, is really inaccurate because they were women who were young women sometimes, although mainly older women actually, who were accused and tortured. It was mainly the older women, probably women about my age, you know, 40s. There was a lot of pain, a lot of suffering, an incredible amount of paranoia and difficulty associated with everything to do with that period. I didn't want to paint the pain that these women went through. I didn't want to paint the, the suffering and the sort of violence, you know, I didn't, that, that wasn't something that I felt I could do. And I didn't also feel that that would necessarily help the memory of these women and some men as well. So I, I suppose I wanted to think about these women as as normal young girls, as, as girls, you know, girls and young women who were interested, but perhaps did have this sense of paranoia, this sense of society closing in on itself and, and um, you know, threat. I think that is very interesting. And this sense of, um, yeah, maybe they could see around the corner, you know, maybe they could see into the future. And what's wrong with that? <laughs> you know, <laughs> And this idea that they were accused of dancing with the devil and the fairies and, you know, really fascinated me a lot. And I had actually done a, a, a series of paintings um, quite a while ago called The Little People okay. about the fairies in Fife oh. and Scotland. And they were miniatures. So, you know, that was a theme already in my work. But, um, but the devil, I, I, when I came to paint the devil, I, I painted these witch girls at the same time because I felt that they came as a one, mm -hmm. one piece. So there were originally four of these paintings, um, just two of them are in the Union Gallery, um, but I, I painted them as a one conception, as it were. And this, this interesting situation of looking into the devil and seeing yourself is exactly my interpretation of the devil card. 
Oh, okay. <laughs> it was very effective then. <laughs> well, I didn't mean it, you know, <laughs> I didn't mean it with the glass. But I think it's really fascinating that you, you had that reaction because the devil is whatever chains you, whatever you trip yourself up with. So it can be addictive behavior or um, negative thought patterns or, you know, things almost being the devil on your shoulder, you know, so all of that is within yourself. Mm. So it's interesting that you one sees oneself in the devil. And I've had a few other people saying things like, I can't stop looking at him. You know, is he looking at me? Am I looking at him? And someone else said, oh, am I supposed to fancy him? You know, <laughs> there's all of this kind of weird reflexive energy that does go on with the devil card. Um, so, yeah, I think it's interesting. Um, and, it, and it's interesting that he's, he's a man because I like as you as you've noticed i've mainly painted women and even you know a lot of the the cards in the deck are female the some of the traditionally male yes figures. like the knights yeah. yeah yeah like the knights like the um some of the pages the the fool the hierophant a lot of them are traditionally male and i just i don't know i I don't really know why, but I suppose I'm very drawn to the the female, the goddess thing, you know? I think that is a very fascinating area. And I guess I think, well, why why were these very important roles given to men? Why not give them to a woman? Because a, a female perspective is, well, it's my perspective, obviously, but why were the important ones, you know, the Hierophant, for example, was... Um, was the Pope and I, and um, I never really liked that. That, that. that never sat well with me when I was reading Tarot, that they were all male. I just didn't, it just felt too, the balance was all wrong. But I kept the devil as a man, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> it's very limiting to think that only men should be in these various capacities. Yes. You know, through lockdown, I've been watching a lot of epic series uh, shows like Game of Thrones. I just finished watching The Last Kingdom. And um, for a while, I had watched Vikings a couple years ago. And I watch every documentary I can on Scotland, on history of the UK and Ireland and um, Celtic history, Mm -hmm. pagan, druid, all of this is fascinating to me. And the reality is that there were female warriors, there were female leaders. It was much more equal way back when than it is today. And I think what struck me about your collection is that it, as much as people might look at it and say, oh, she's making a statement here about women should be more on the fore, for, to me, it's a throwback. The death card that you created was absolutely compelling and beautiful. Mm-hmm. And I know it's sold. It seems to have sold very early <laughs> as well. It was, first, it was the first one to sell. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. And um, it's, it's a little scary and ominous, as it should be. <laughs> but I, I saw little hummingbirds and I saw flashes of bright green to suggest there is life beyond the veil. And it was a beautiful lacy veil with your screen printing. The paintings came first, obviously, but now the deck is, is, is a thing within itself. And um, 
lots of people have, have said to me, God, it doesn't pull any punches. You know, it's, it's quite a, a punchy energy, apparently. Um, wow. And my uh, couple of my friends have said, oh, yeah, we call it the deck of truth. Ooh. Yes, I agree. There's a definite throwback sense. I, I really love that analogy. But it's also some of them, I didn't want them to be male or female. Mm-hmm. I just wanted them to be the, themselves and wanted them to be the energy. So it wasn't, I'm definitely not making a, a statement on purpose. Um, but it's just more that I suppose my perspective is, is very female, but it, it's that thing of wanting it to be more equal, wanting it to be more androgynous. And that's that sort of blurring of gender, I find really beautiful and interesting and so I suppose some of the the more traditional you know male energies the hierophant is a really good example it's neither male nor female it's the essence of peace it's the essence of the energy which is not one thing or the other in terms of gender so never been a, a better time to bring this uh, forward because yeah. it's a very um, hot topic the pronouns that people want to be known by the transgender conversation androgyny even as a fashion trend right now so yeah just about being the the purest form of yourself isn't it and and it just doesn't matter what what the label is I think it's honoring something without judging it yes and I believe uh, we over label things. <laughs> we shouldn't label things because it diminishes whatever the truth is. I want to thank you so much for your beautiful work and bring your spirit and ideas to the Mindstream podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. It's been lovely to talk. To view Sophie's work or buy the painted tarot deck, head to sophiemckaynight.com. 2,000 years ago, the Celts would gather on October 31st and into November 1st for several reasons. They felt that at this time, the veil between the living and the dead was as thin as it would be all year, and November 1st became New Year's Day. But there's more. Sawin marks the transition between seasons, the Summer King hands the season off to the Winter King. That feat takes shape every year in Edinburgh on Kelton Hill, as organized by the Beltane Fire Society. I spoke with the chair of this charity, Bradley MacArthur, to learn more about their world-renowned festival for Sawin and the mission of the organization and why Celtic tradition and Scottish history is relevant today. Bradley told me that the Beltane Fire Society, as it's known today, actually started as a small group of like-minded people getting together back in the late 80s to celebrate the art and heritage of Scotland. It was about reconnecting with green space. And over the years, it grew to such popularity that in 2008, the group organized as a formal charity, the Beltane Fire Society, which is a self-funded organization. They take no funding from the city, grants, or sponsors. All their income is from ticket sales to their events and donations. 
COVID-19 lockdown restrictions happened one month before the Beltane Festival in April. And so they acted very quickly to throw something together online. And for Win on Halloween, they had much more prep time. To watch this year's Sawin Fire Festival, just go to Beltane.org or find the Beltane Fire Society on Facebook or YouTube. It's free. All right, let's join the conversation with Bradley MacArthur, the chair of the Beltane Fire Society. Bradley, I'd like to thank you so much for joining the Mindstream podcast today. I'm happy to come along. Great. Can you begin by telling us what the Beltane Fire Society is and what you do? In Scottish history, there is a long period of time where, you know, you depend upon the land. Um, and it's the same for most cultures around the world, where there was a strong reliance on the land and nature before sort of industrial revolution and everything. Um, so a lot of Scottish heritage and how um, people in Scotland have interacted with um, the surroundings has had that high connection to nature and it's always been at the forefront. You know, that's something that we see even nowadays where during the current climate crisis, you know, Scotland is trying to punch above its weight in um, setting goals and targets and declaring climate emergencies and really appreciating that that our natural environment is such a key part to us. And I think part of that is also that, you know, Scotland, when people come to visit it, is renowned for, you know, the lovely hills and um, the picturesque um, sort of scenery that you can get. So it's always had a sort of um, ethereal beauty, um, or at least maybe that's just because I'm biased. <laughs> but there's a, a sheer beauty to the landscape that you can't help but want to connect to in some way. And yeah, it was the fact that, Obviously, Edinburgh, um, although it's quite a big city, I suppose big city in terms of Scottish cities, I'm, I'm aware that around the world are much bigger in terms of populated cities. Um, but it is also quite a green space where you've got a lot of, sort of trees um, along the streets. You've got the botanical gardens basically sitting almost in the heart of Edinburgh. You've got parks that are open to the public. And it was appreciating that and how Scotland fits both its um, the green spaces, its natural environment, in with what is currently, um, you know, our, our modern setting of concrete and brick and everything else, and how those two sort of live side by side. And what we do is we create a, a artistic reimagining um, of these festivals based on sort of Celtic mythology. So um, it's very much based off, you know, People in Ireland back in the day will have maybe had a version of Samhain. People in Scotland, um, maybe England, France, you know, in that sort of Celtic sphere of influence, um, various other people might have had certain things that would have connected them to this time of year and that they would have recognised as it is Samhain and this is what we do at this particular time of year. So it was very much not solely Scottish and where possible where volunteers want to bring more Scottish elements to it. Um, You know, we give them the free reign to bring that in because we've had previous years and this year as well, we've got people that are wanting to do some Gaelic singing. And so they're really trying to revive part of that sort of Scottish heritage by bringing in that language that used to be used before almost everyone in the country speaks English now. (laughs) Mm, That's so interesting. 
It's probably the first time ever uh, we've been restricted from these public gatherings. Yes, this, this year is a very unique version of the festival. To give a bit of context, for Samhain Bio Festival, what we generally have is parade either through the city centre or in the last two or three years, it has been sort of up on Coulter Hill as well. And that parade and those performances would incorporate fire spinning, acrobatics, singing, very elaborate costumes, and it would be sort of linchpinned around three core characters known as the Kaliak, the Summer King, and the Winter King. And the narrative story behind that being that the Summer and the Winter King, you know, there will be at some point uh, crossroads that they will have to come to. So whether they are rivals throughout and it's a, a battle to the death, or whether it's their friends and they realise that one of them needs to take over to get everyone through winter. Basically marking that seasonal transition that is known for this time of year with these two characters embodying those aspects. And then the Kaliak being the force of change. So an aspect of triple goddess in sort of pagan and sort of Celtic mythology being that um, she is the sort of final aspect, the crone, um, and she brings the change of the seasons when she awakens and comes, and that she is the sort of catalyst that drives this change between the Summer King and the Winter King, um, and it's her bringing the changing of the seasons. Generally, um, parade, uh, fire, costumes. This year, with um, the global pandemic happening and sort of social distancing having to be a key thing that we've thought about, we've had many difficult conversations for the summer to figure out how to make it work, um, if, if it would even be possible to put on a festival or not, depending on you know various factors. Um, and so what we're doing is we're doing a fully online festival, um, which is quite new for us. Um, you know, we're, we're generally more used to playing with fire and being in front of people and like having that kind of production. So this will be the second time we've ever done a sort of digital performance. Uh, the first one being back in April when we had drastically shift our fire festival into something online, um, you know, with a month's notice. So we've had more time to prepare this time, which has been great. We've got top animation and um, which totally isn't possible at a physical festival um, in the dark on a hill. But because people will be sitting down online, they can watch sort of stop animation of acrobatic happening or the story being told of like the Kaliak journey. And we've been able to really explore the narrative side things more. It is more multimedia than we've ever been that's great. And Bradley, how did you get involved with the Beltane Fire Society? What brought you or drew you to it? I've heard about Beltane Fire Festival happening as a sort of teenager in Edinburgh. I, I'm not Christian, so do I want to be pagan or do I want to, you know, looking at different sort of um, philosophical branches on life and sort of different spiritual practices that might fit me. So I stumbled across Beltane in that way and sort of went, oh, that's really cool, uh, went along um, as a teenager to see the fire festival happen on the hill and was mesmerized by the drums and the fire, the stuff that really gets people excited to come along and just totally hooked me as a teenager, of course. 
And then it was sort of several years later, um, after I was finishing my degree, and I was like, oh, I don't know what I want to do with my life. Um, oh, what? And just deciding that, oh, there's an open call out for this festival um, for volunteers. Yeah, I'll give that a go. Why not? Uh, it's something I remember being really mesmerized by. So I'm going to go see how I get involved in it. Um, so I joined as a volunteer in 2014, which feels like a lifetime ago now. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, I sort of performed in a couple of groups. Um, so I've been a torch bearer where they carry the fire around on the hill. Um, I've been dressed up as a bird at one point. I've been in a fire group. I've been in a drumming group. So I got, I've been in a flavour of different groups. And then in 2017, um, they were looking for sort of a new trustee to look, take over sort of finance side of things, the treasurer. And I went, well, I've, I've got experience in finance, so I'll join. I got involved, you know, for the last three years, um, been involved on the board of trustees. And when our previous chair um, stepped down, I put my hand up as I, yeah, I'll ha happily be involved. And it's been a really interesting experience being involved in Beltane as one of the sort of last grassroots festivals taking place in sort of central Edinburgh, I feel. Um, just because a lot of the other festivals can be maybe not more corporate. They've had a longevity and more sort of entrenched. Meanwhile, Beltane has always been a little bit of this side grassroots hippie sort of feeling to it, which sets us apart a bit as well. But it's been an interesting environment to be involved in. And, you know, one of the few festivals I'm going to get to play with fire at. <laughs> <laughs> right. I think um, I've, I've never been at, at the festival, but it just seems like there's an air of mystique and wildness about it. Sort of that feeling like you never know what might happen. You never know what you might see. You talk about costumes, but I understand there are people who are wearing next to nothing at times. Can you talk about what the feeling is when you are bearing that torch or you're drumming or you're dressed up as a bird or you're there and you're feeling it? I mean, what is that sensation like? The air of mystery um, is apparent at every festival, and that is partly due to the fact that um, each festival could bring entirely new groups because it's, in some ways, although the narrative is the same for each festival, the groups that come forward and the performances that happen um, do change year on year. So even if you come 20 times to the festival, you're going to see something different each time. It might be different parts of what you see but they, they will always be slightly different and nuanced in various ways so I think that helps keep it fresh and nuanced and mysterious um, to people that come and they're like oh I remember the thing and then it's like where did it go <laughs> um, but yeah for the feeling of it it's it's a really interesting experience the the feelings that you get from being involved in the festival they're partly influenced by what you're looking to get out of it so I know that quite a few of our volunteers will come because they like to hang out with their friends and a lot of their friends are now involved in this thing. Some of them will come for the fact that they get to do these really crazy artistic things 
that they might not get to do in their day-to-day jobs or their day-to-day lives. And then we do have people that come to this with a sense of sort of ritual importance and they they really take stock in the fact that this is a marking of seasons and um, remembering that we're part of a much wider ecosystem. It's really cliche to say, but it really is just a magical experience. My first time when I was involved, it was it was terrifying to think, oh, I'm, I'm going to be performing in front of between three to 10,000 people, depending on how many people have bought tickets. And that um, moment coming over the sort of Acropolis, um, which is a sort of monument on the hill, and just going, oh, oh, I'm the tallest here, and mm. I can just see out into these waves of people taking photos and watching this absolutely bonkers stuff. Such a weird but wonderful, and like the rush of endorphins you get from this experience, it's really interesting. And, you know, it's not just the experience you get on the night it's the sort of the two months leading up to that where you're sitting with these 10 20 other people that are in your group that you're you know you're bonding with you're making friendships you're you know you're learning new skills whether it be sewing mask making how to sing in gaelic um how to even read gaelic um, you know learning drumming patterns it's it's such a whirlwind of experience that we compress in two months. We've watched like amazing friendships and partnerships come from the fact that you spend two months really getting to know other people and going on a shared journey with them that culminates in this absolutely crazy thing on one night of the year. It, yeah, I don't know if I could ever describe it and um, with enough justice. I think it's one of those things that you almost have to experience or live through and to fully appreciate how weird but wonderful it is. (laughs) (laughs) That's a great description. It's certainly intriguing. How does one go about finding how to connect with a group who might apply to be part of the celebration? The wonderful thing about Built-In Fire Society is that we, we don't limit it to sort of skills or experience that you've had in the past. One of our charitable aims is all about sort of that skill sharing and building that talent in people. A couple of months before the festival, we do our call out for people that might be interested in running a group. So this is really just to find the people that have a vision or an idea that they want to attach to that festival's narrative and what do they want to do. People will put an application to be like, I want to lead a drumming crew and we're going to dress as the sort of babies of Celtic mythology and we'll be drumming or I want to do an acrobatics group and we get these different applications and they can be applications from people who are you know involved in belting for years and have a lot of experience that way they can be from people that have you know never been to a belting before or or of a sawin um, but they've got expertise in an area and so if they're really good at singing and because they're a professional musician and they've got a whole bunch of instruments that they can teach people to play we'll happily consider them once we've got all those people in place we would have a open meeting each group will do its pitch for two minutes just describing what they want to do and how they're going to meet up manage all that and then everyone that's there can just go along chat people find out is that the group for them does it fit and then those groups, some of them might have tryouts. We're very open in that, you know, we want 
anyone to come along to this. So whether or not you've spun fire before, whether or not you're comfortable sewing a costume um, or parading about in almost nothing, as some of the characters do do, <laughs> you know, we're very open to, if, if you want to be involved, we're happy to have you. Just be willing to learn. Overall, we want people to make sure that they enjoy the experience, you know, share those skills, build people up, and let's have fun doing it. That's great. It sounds very open and inclusive, as you said, and just a wild adventure. Our key festivals are um, Beltane Fire Festival that we do at the end of April, and then Samhain Fire Festival that we do at the end of October. There are eight festivals that are possible under the sort of Celtic calendar, but these are the sort of two linchpins. So we do mark those in a very public way. Um, and in previous years, what we have done is we've marked maybe one or two of the smaller festivals throughout the year, but as sort of um, BFS volunteers only, so that it's a sort of give back to the people that have spent two or three months giving up their time to help us put on a festival. We have a, you know, we'll have a sort of get together in December for Yule, where we'll meet up in February um, for Imbo and have a sort of celebration just as volunteers and friends as well. Do you think Celtic traditions are relevant today? Yeah, I, I would definitely say, you know, Celtic traditions are worth looking back to. You know, there's always that debate around do we glorify our history or, you know, do we remember? You know, that's been very prominent this year where there's been talks on various aspects of British history um, that are less than good. Um, but I think the thing that we we take from our past is that, you know, we're, we're honouring the fact that there was a way of life that happened before the modern age. And that was very much appreciative and understood that nature was a big part of it. And you weren't separate from the land. You know, you were part of that ecosystem and your survival depended on how good the land was, just like your animals did and your life depended on your animals. So take care of the land, take care of your animals, take care of you, take care of the land. Um, and I think that's something that seems to be sort of back in the cultural zeitgeist, this sort of um, maybe not simpler time, but looking at how we once used to be quite in tune with seasons and marking and respecting certain things where 100, 200 odd years of industrial revolution and modern living has sort of created a different culture that people are starting to see isn't sustainable. Um, and it's something that if we look at how we did it in the past, which was fine for thousands of years, and um, maybe there is more things to learn from that than we think. And yeah, it's always good to um, sort of mark your heritage and, you know, not idealise it, but understand that you've got a shared cultural connection with everyone else in your country. And that is something that you can either choose to share um, with those people, or you can share it with other cultures around the world and really bring together that melting pot of different ideas because, you know, strength and diversity. And so by bringing those different cultures together and learning the best aspects of them and learning how we incorporate that, keep moving forward and building a better future each time, you know, it's something really key. And so I think, yeah, definitely reflecting on sort of Celtic heritage and, you know, how things were done previously is very important understand where we want to go going forward as well.
Very well said, beautifully said. And I think you're absolutely right that I really do feel that there is a wave, a momentum right now to rediscover the natural ways of life. The Global Wellness Institute put their trends out for 2020, and so much of it was about natural health. It was about us understanding our circadian rhythms so we can optimize our performance and really be our best natural state. And they also talk about energy healing and how that's something that's really coming to the fore and will be part of healthcare and well-being in the future. And they can be aided by technology, but this is how people got along for thousands of years. And I think our head's been so stuck in, as you say, industrialization and technology and that sort of thing that we've forgotten the old ways. And the old ways worked for so long. There's wisdom there, and it is relevant now. And it sounds like what you're doing at the Beltane Fire Society is keeping these things alive and showing how relevant they are. So I want to thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, it's been great. Thank you. As usual, the transcript of this podcast will appear on mindstreamconnect.com with all the links of places and people mentioned. And stay tuned to episode seven of the Mindstream podcast coming up later this month. It features a conversation with Claire Gilman, the editor of Kindred Spirit magazine and author of many books. We'll get her insights on where the mind-body-spirit movement is today. The Mindstream podcast is put on by MindstreamConnect.com. Thank you for listening. This is Liza Haran, signing off with love and light.